hey, welcome to church. Uh, I don't like the name Pro-Life Sunday. Uh, this is just kingdom, biblical, justice, gospel Sunday, which is like every Sunday. And every Sunday, uh, I, I, I get up here and I try to teach you from God's Word. There's something curious that happened when I was a kid and I was largely raised outside the church, but when my grandparents, I would go to church. One of the first things you learn in church, ironically, is not the gospel, but the Ten Commandments, right? Who here was more comfortable naming at least six of the commandments before they could really articulate exactly what the gospel was? Anybody? Which is not necessarily bad. Sometimes we start with the law in order to understand the need for grace. But when I would read the Ten Commandments, and I don't know about you, but there's something that went on. I went through the Ten Commandments and I would look at these commandments and say, well, there's some of these that I'm, I'm actually doing okay, right? And I would look at it and be like, uh, you know, um, have no other gods before me, make no graven image. Now, I'm pretty good with Legos, but I hadn't built any golden calves, all right? And so I'm looking at that being like, I think I'm all right. Adultery, you know what I mean? Like, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 10 and... Uh, I, I just felt like I, like I was slam dunking the don't commit adultery one, all right? And then I get down into murder, and it says, thou shalt not kill, which is really a bad translation. It's thou shalt not murder. And so, um, like I was a bad kid in school, like absolutely awful, but I'm killing that one, it, it, which is ironic. That's not a good way. I, I was not murdering people. But then, I, like, I, as I came to Jesus and I began to look at these commandments again, I started to see that the invitation to not be idolatrous was not simply with constructing things like golden calves, but it was in my heart constructing things that I held with more affection and I held more ultimate in my life than God. And all of a sudden, I began to be aware that I was an idolater. Because I love things at different parts of my life more than Him. And there's authority that I gave things that were more ultimate than Him in my life. And I, I broke that commandment. And then I started looking at adultery. And I kept reading in the Bible and found that little verse where Jesus says, If you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And that one... So there goes my righteousness right out the window, right? And <clears throat> the murder one was a little bit more tricky. It's like if you've ever hated your brother, you've already committed murder, Jesus says. But then I started to zoom back out in our culture, and in particular to this justice issue, and realize that since 1973, anybody born after 1973 in this room has survived the largest human genocide that humanity has ever done. In your free republic democracy, the greatest genocide that's ever happened. Like, if you're alive today, you are statistically, if you're born after 1973, having survived a genocide, we are a culture that murders. And as I, you know, like I was at university and doing drugs and partying and living in that lifestyle, I knew 
girls in our circle we were partying with that had had multiple abortions before they were 22. Because the road goes on forever and the party never ends and nobody wanted to stop the party. And so you just had to kill the kid so that you could have fruitless sex. And so I, I, come, I come as my job, as your pastor and preacher, every single week. And um, I don't know if it's directly in the job description, Jarrett, but it's a part of the preaching gig is that my job is to attack sin. Every week. Your sin, my sin, our sin. My job is to um, attack destructive beliefs and false religious systems that will curse you and bring death and curse to those around you. While at the same time, I hold that with one hand, I hold in the other hand a responsibility to love people ferociously. And in our church, we're holding both of these realities. We're going to tell the truth and we're going to love people. Amen? And so it gets, it gets heavy uh, sometimes. But here's the thing that I, I, I know. Like almost every time we've ever um, done this Sunday, um, there's always been somebody or multiple people in here who have had an abortion. Or a dad whose girlfriend or, wife, or somebody affected by abortion. We've had people... Um, that have, you know, considered that and given their children for adoption or somebody in here who has been adopted. We have families who have family members that are directly affected by this. And look, our church is not going to skirt around the hard issues. We are going to look at the depravity of our time straight in the face so that we can proclaim Jesus over it. And so we're not talking about other people, other places. We're talking about us here in this room. And so one thing that I kind of have to hedge my bets a little bit or give you a a little bit of reading is I'm going to invite you today to not hear what I'm not saying. Right? Or don't hear what I'm not saying. What what I mean by that is nobody here has out-sinned the cross of Christ. Like there's, there's no... A brand of evil that you've gotten your hands into that is bigger than the cross of Christ. Like, none of us. And if your sin is the sin of murder and abortion and you walk in here and you think all these other people are good, I can promise you they're not. What is miraculous about this church is that God can forgive So many manifold differences of evil that each individual here has brought into this room. They just got a different flavor of sin that they need the cross of Christ for. And so no one here has done something so vile and evil and so powerful in their sin that it is Better than the grace of God to forgive that sin. Right? So we'll just get the gospel reality right up front. But 
Well, no one has out sinned, and there's no debt that you have that grace can't pay. Whether you're in a, a mother or somebody that's been an accomplice or somebody that's put peer pressure on. No matter who you are, listen, I don't write the mail, but it is my job to deliver it. And here's the reality. The secular myth that we are moving towards a Christless utopia is an idea in our culture built upon lies. Millions on millions of dead little babies have gotten in the way of that myth, that secular myth that we are going to have a Christless utopia and all we got to do is kill our kids to get there. Is as old as the demonic lies of the Old Testament. And it is my job to attack those lies because the weak in culture suffer when lies are told as truth. So here's my ambition is to biblically, uh, I want to biblically frame uh, childhood, okay, and children. I want to biblically frame that. I'm going to have a little bit of a runway, and then I'm going to get to our Mark passage, which uh, for our regular study of Mark, I'm actually skipping ahead to 10 uh, for our house churches, and then I'll come back and finish 9, and we'll, we'll do kind of an okey-doke thing there, all right? But here's what we want for today. Uh, the text in chapter 10 fit this really well, and I think the Holy Spirit is going to continue to build Uh, the child-welcoming culture in our church. But we have to talk biblically and frame it in about what is a child. So I have a PowerPoint, and uh, they're going to bring that up. Um, And I I want to be crystal clear about what God says about childhood. And the Bible is clear that that childhood does not begin when they pass the layer of skin of the womb, but that childhood begins at conception. That childhood has within it something unique about the kingdom of God and truth and reality to teach every single one of us. So the first passage I think is bearing weight. If you're not a Christian in here, whenever this, this verse right here explains a lot about how we value other people. It's beginning parts of our ethic of how we treat one another. Um, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God then said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. All the creeps. Alright? And so God says, I'm going to make man in my image and he in my image, is not like other animal life that I've created. He is endowed with what theologians will call the imago Dei, the image of God, a imprint of the divine upon the human soul that is not shared with the rest of animal life. Now, that should offend all my Durangatanes that snuck in to our sanctuary over here in Bayfield. You know why? Because you think you're a dog mom. I know, we we had a dog, we got a dog, since been rehomed, the dog came home with us, and one thing that I found 
was that my kids who committed to this dog were not spending as much time with the dog as I was. I was taking it places. I didn't love the dog because I reserved that kind of language for my wife and kids. And it feels weird to throw a dog in there, all right? But I highly like this dog, all right? That dog is not my child, all right? If you are a dog mom, you got some explaining to do, all right? Because that's not science or the Bible. So there's a difference here. As much as we can love our animals, there's a difference between us and them. We might share hair or skin type or different attributes. But what the Bible is going to say, there's a way in which you are like God that they are not. There is a moral, intellectual, and spiritual capacity that you have that they don't have. Your dog at home right now is not worrying about bills next week. Or if they sinned against their grandma. Alright, there's a capacity in you that they do not share. The eagle egg, which ironically is better protected by law than our children in the womb. The eagle egg is not of greater value than children. I know this is crazy. To our culture. Listen, the greatest breed of horse in all of its majesty. I think horses are amazing, right? The greatest breed of horse that's going to be at the Kentucky Derby is not of greater value than the children that's in some of the mom's wombs that are in this room. Uh, The dolphin and all of its squeaks. Not of greater value. And so we... We start here with the Imago Day. Listen, what you believe about your neighbors defines how you treat them, including your neighbors that are in the womb. We as Christians are called to love our neighbors, including the smallest versions of that. If I believe that they are made in the image of God, there is a respect and an honor and a treatment that flows out of that. Would you agree? And if I believe they are nothing more than a clump of cells, it makes it so much easier to throw them in the trash. Head, limbs, and all. See, this is where the worldview of our culture and secular thought and atheistic thought and the culture of Christianity, we're we're just not reconciling this. Like, we're just not. And, and here's, here's the other thing. How do you have colonial slavery? Well, we're going to see those people as other. As of lesser value. We almost always do this Sunday around Martin Luther King Day because there is no ethnicity in our culture that is more disproportionately affected by abortion than the African American community. And that is because the people who started Planned Parenthood began it as a eugenics project to eliminate certain races of people. So we're all, this is a justice issue whether we're denying the image of God in these people in slavery or we're denying the image of God in the womb. The problem begins that we don't see others the way God sees them and we don't treat them the way God intends us to treat them. Amen. You go to the Holocaust, the same argumentation that Hitler did with the Jews is the same lines of logic that you will hear about that children in the womb are not really people. They don't have rights. 
and my rights trump their rights. Same language. So we start here at the Imago Dei. We go to the next one, if you would, Ty. We go to Psalm 139, verse 16. Uh, Well, I put 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. David here is speaking. When does this Imago Dei, when does this value come on to us? Who, you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, long before anybody else laid eyes on you, God knew you. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. That before your DNA actually was spliced together and you became a unique person in the womb, God already knew that person. That's unbelievable. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knows your whole story. So when does this begin? Does your value as a human begin when you start contributing? No. Because if that's the case, none of my count yet, right? Because I tell them all the time to get a job. Does this count when you become cognitive of it? Like, would, would my kids need to be cognitive that they're made in the image of God or that God formed them and knit them together? Do they need to be cognitive of that in order for it to be applicable? No. What about, does that say about their ethnicity? Do they need to be a certain ethnicity in order to have value? What about status? Do they have to have so much money in order for them to count? What this is saying is that children in the womb are children. And we can play and move the goalpost and throw around semantics like the word fetus. They're a fetus. Fetus, as I've taught here before, is nothing other than the Latin word for little child. So use the word fetus all you want. As long as we're both agreeing... If you spoke Latin, we're still talking about a kid. Right? This value is inherent. It's inherent. Trimesters do not determine this value. Trimesters are like the prime meridian. Or the equator. You can go outside and look up in the sky for that line that you've seen on maps. You ain't going to see it up in the sky. It's, it's been set by people. It is an imaginary line that circles the earth. For you flat earthers in here, it, it's a whole other set of problems, all right? Trimesters are an artificial separation what the bible makes a distinction of is that in the womb is a child in the womb is a child with inherent value that god knitted that god knows and i could go to the next slide and there's uh, i mean we we could go all over the bible with this this is why if i preach here for 40 years i'm never going to run out of, of of source material from the bible 
Because Jeremiah 1.5 is going to say, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Go to the next one. There's a combination of Exodus laws. There was laws in the Old Testament that if you had struck a pregnant woman, they understood that there was a child in there whose life had value. Job said he made us by his spirit. Isaiah says he names us. In Galatians, Paul talks about his testimony. Now, he came to Christ on the Damascus Road, but once he came to Christ, he came to understand that Paul was set apart even before he was born. This is the biblical framework for how the Bible is going to understand childhood. Now, you would say this to me and come back. It's like, yeah, but... Colby, what about kids that are born in poor circumstances or come about from some other heinous crime or injustice? 100%, there are people growing up like myself that were in bad circumstances for their mother. But I can testify myself that your circumstances that you begin life in do not determine where your life ends. Anybody else can say that? Your circumstances that you began in are not the end of the story. I am so tired of our culture and our world who are not people of faith and are short-sighted looking at somebody else's circumstances in life and saying, because they're growing up poor, it would be better that they're dead than poor. Do you, have, do you understand the amount of lunacy and short-sightedness that you have to have to look at somebody else's life and say, it's better they're dead than poor? Where's their choice? Amen. You're taking your choice and determining for another the choice of their life. I look at so many women who are pressured today into having abortions and I look at my mother and I would have been a great candidate to be killed in the womb. There were complications. My mother was estranged from my dad at the time. There was money issues. But I don't know about you, but I'm glad my mother had me. Right? Anybody else happy to be here? I don't know if you know my God, but He takes bad circumstances and works them for good. I don't know if you've heard about the God of the Bible, but He is like amazing at taking the evil people do and working it out to great good. Like, it's kind of His thing. You have to be an absolute unbeliever with short-sightedness to act like God can't overcome American poverty, which, by the way, our poverty is like, for the rest of the world, unbelievable riches. It's just, we got to get into this, out of this goofy mentality. Like we're helping people by killing them. Our God takes evil and works it to good. Do you realize that God took the evil done against the, His Son, Jesus Christ, the murder of His Son, and He worked it. He worked it for the redemption of the world. 
Now tell me your circumstances that God can't work through. And tell me how they're bigger than the cross. The biblical framework for God is that children are to be cherished, seen, valued, and I'm going to argue at the end, welcomed. But I think we've got to get to this part right here first. And I'm going to say this, and I don't know who needs to hear this in here, or who needs to tell their friend this this week. But doing the right thing will never eternally ruin your life. Doing the right thing will never eternally ruin your life. Doing the right thing and welcoming children will never eternally ruin your life. Will they ruin your five-year plan? Absolutely. My kids are going to ruin my next five days for the glory of God. But they're never going to eternally ruin my life. And if I can welcome them, there's a way in which I'm welcoming the kingdom. There's a way in which I'm, ruining, I'm welcoming the kingdom. And you're saying, okay, but what if that means we've we got to save a mother? What if a mother's life is, is at stake? We hear this argument. It's a false argument. It's a weak argument. Because the numbers of women, especially with modern science, whose lives are actually at risk for their pregnancy, where they have to choose between the mother or the child, is so infinitely small it's almost laughable to use this as an example for the overwhelming millions of children that are killed for nothing other than convenience. I mean, it's so minuscule. But here's the thing. Let's, let's just run with that logic a little bit about a mother or the child. Say a child is out in the street and a mom sees the kid in the street and a semi-truck is coming by. Tell me this. With all the ethics that we have in the room, is it evil? Evil. I'm using a word specifically. Is it evil for a mother to run out in the street at expense to her life to save that kid? No. Is it sin? Is it injustice? Is it wrong for the mother to potentially risk her life diving so that a child may be saved? How about this? What does it do for you morally? And I know we got all kinds of weak moral compasses across the room. Some of us got the Holy Spirit, some don't. What does it do for you for a mother to stand by having the potential to save her kid in the street from the truck? Stand by and look indifferently at the kid dying. That don't do nothing for you? If we celebrate the mother who rescues the child, what do we do with the mom who sets back indifferently? Oh, see, we don't want to play this logic. And see, even this is a bad analogy. You know why this is a bad analogy? For... The nearly, I mean, 600,000 to a million abortions that's going to happen this year. Mom is not standing on the sideline. Dad is not standing on the sideline. They're the ones driving the truck. So, the reality is we are either welcoming children to bless them or we're stiff-arming children to curse them. And we're going to see that from our text in Mark. But before we do, I'll maybe give you a, a real-life illustration. There was a um, missionary couple in the Philippines, and they, had, they were pregnant with their sixth child. And she got an amoebic uh, dysentery. And if you've ever played Oregon Trail, you know dysentery is no thing to mess with, right? Um, or if you've played with history books, what's really interesting about history, because I, I kind of get into old uh, church history stuff. That's my academic background. 
how many kings even would just die of dehydration. Like, it's really, un- it's glorious to die on the battlefield. It's really unglorious to die of diarrhea. But in the Middle Ages, like, that, that happened. Like, people get dehydrated. It's unbelievably terrible for you. We even dealt with somebody in that in our church this week. Dehydration is just really bad. So she gets this amoebic dysentery and is really, really sick, dehydrated, not doing well, goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, in order to attack this uh, virus, we're going to have to give you a specific medicine so that you can rehydrate and save your life. But here's the thing. That medicine is going to require that you abort the baby. Missionary, Philippines, what are you going to do? Are you going to save your life? Or are you going to risk your life in order to save the child? Real life scenario. Gets with her husband, prays, decides we're going we're to keep the kid and risk it. And by God's grace, she heals, overcomes the dysentery, um, has the baby. They name him Tim. And you know him. This is the story of Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow is the son of... Sixth child of missionaries in the Philippines who were told to abort him. Now talk to me about how many people have heard the gospel from that guy, even though he can't even play quarterback. (laughs) See, here's what his parents did. They welcomed him. At great expense to themselves. And by the way, Welcoming all of our children. Any parents in here says, all of our children that we welcomed into the world cost us. They still cost us. The only thing we're trying to preach to the world is that it's worth it. Amen. Amen. Turn to Mark chapter 10. The context for this, uh, because we are jumping out of order, the context for this is Jesus has just taught about divorce. That teaching precedes this conversation about kids. By the way, one of these sermons on pro-life, we're going to talk about the need to have the conversation of the way fornication and adultery fit into the murder of children. Because everybody wants to talk about, right now I think it's because we're in such a, we just got to save as many kids as we can. We're not talking about how the sexual ethics that came out of the 1960s produced the 1973 abortion law and the murder of these children. Sexual immorality and the murder of children in our culture go hand in hand. We don't have time for all of that, but I would say this, that healthy, strong marriages are what bring the kids best to Jesus. And so there's a movement and a shift in my own heart as I preach this, and I've talked to Matt and Abby, is that I want to not only um, in the future discuss saving children from genocide, I want to also be able to say, for you that are raising children right now, go to God's grace to raise them well. For some of you, adopting kids is going to be something you're going to need to go to God's grace to empower you to adopt or to foster. And so we want to expand in our church the ways that we are serving the little saints among us. Uh, not decrease that. Does that make sense? So there's two sides of this. There's the justice issue where we want to defense 
And then there's the fostering and adopting and having children and raising them well side of that. And all of it needs God's power, Holy Spirit, and grace. Amen? So I want to I move there, but um, here I just want to kind of touch on this thing. Um, look in, in verse 13. And they were bringing, that's a participle, children to him that he might touch them. Pause. I have to make a statement right here. This is not inappropriate touching. The reason I have to make a statement is because our culture is more full of perverts now than I could possibly imagine adding more perverts to it. That when we think of someone touching a child, we almost instinctively think the negative. Isn't that right? This is not Jeffrey Epstein touching a kid. This is loving a kid and showing physical affection in a way to protect them. They kept bringing kids to Jesus. Touch him. This is a continual action that they repeatedly do. They are constantly bringing, like lining kids up to bring that he might touch them. So here's one thing that I want to think of as a father. I want to constantly bring my kids to Jesus that he might touch their lives. Anybody else? I want to bring my kids to him. I want his hands all upon their life all the time. Now, we've already talked about this in chapter 9, verse 36. Jesus has used children as a teaching tool to describe things about the kingdom we can't learn otherwise. He's going to build upon that here, that he might touch them. And disciples, listen to this passage, rebuked the parents bringing the kids to Jesus. Jesus should be meeting with magistrates. He should be meeting with rulers and governors. He should be meeting with the wealthy and people that can fund ministry. He should be meeting with the influencers and the people on Instagram with clout. He should be... He ain't got no time for kids. And so Peter, I don't know, maybe with his fisherman Popeye forearms, just stiff-arming a kid. Right? They're playing security control like Red Rover trying to keep kids from coming over. All right? And they rebuke people bringing kids to Jesus. If you go outside of Planned Parenthood this week and pray uh, like some of us in here do, there will be people who will rebuke you for saying that we should welcome these kids into the world and not kill them. They'll rebuke you, I promise. And they feel like they are helping God, reality, culture, society. They think they're helping by rebuking you as you try to welcome these kids. I promise you. Jesus responds to them, and when he, Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Jesus is big mad, angry, upset, frustrated. Now, for some of us, I've taught about the anger of Jesus. You can get those teachings online. Because Jesus loves righteousness, he gets indignant at evil. What they are doing to hinder kids from coming to him is evil. And it does not matter that they are disciples of his. I don't care what big piece of stupid a Christian does. If it's wrong, Jesus will get indignant towards it and rebuke it. Jesus gets indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. 
Let him come. Let him come. Sometimes well-meaning disciples can stop a youth movement, can kill the kids program, can halt us reaching the next generation. But Jesus welcomes it. Jesus sends it and says, let him come. Let him come. Let him come. Let the children come to me. Notice, look at your text. Do not hinder them. It is an unbelievable understatement to say that abortion is the hindering of children. Because it is the ultimate hindering in the form of murder. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus just equated these kids and their coming to him and their existence to something about receiving the kingdom of God. That like the kingdom of a God is like a child entering it. We've learned earlier. There's something here about the kingdom that you, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, that you can't learn from adults because it's too such. So let me, let me break this to you in the, in the way that I'm reading it. There is something each one of us learns about the kingdom of God through children that we will not learn any other way. That there is a unique testimony that maybe the mountains have and the sea have. That a husband and wife, when they are like Christ in the church, their marriages have a unique testimony of the gospel that we don't get anywhere else. That there's a testimony in masculinity and femininity. There's testimonies. It says in Romans that all of creation, hardwired by the Creator, has a unique testimony that preaches to us continually about the King and the Kingdom and the Kingdom of God. And He's going to look at children in particular and say, if you look at kids, there's something about the Kingdom of God you could learn from them that you're not going to learn anywhere else. Now, is it not saying something that that's the same testimony that we're snuffing out before it ever gets out of the womb? Like, God, don't preach me, don't preach to me the sermon about how the kingdom is taught me through children. Let me rip them limb from limb. Our culture, in its rejection of the gospel, in its rejection of God, does not want to hear what God has to say through children. Our hard hearts and our deaf ears want to silence that teaching. We w- and listen, we, we could go beyond the womb. Because really, you know what separates? Like, there is no difference between a six-week-old child in the womb and a six-year-old except time and development. There's no difference. There's no difference between a six-weeks-old child in the womb and a six-year-old except time and develop. By the way, neither of them are fully developed. Also, both of them are dependent. Right? We don't kill a six-year-old because it can't take care of itself. 
We don't kill a six-year-old because it's not a fully developed human. Listen, I was reading things this week. Some people, the full functioning of their brain and the development of the brain isn't happening until what, like 25 years old? We're not snuffing out 24-year-olds. There's no difference except time and development. Jesus welcomes them and says, there's something about these kids and the way they're growing, the way I've given them as a unique witness to teach you things you won't learn anywhere else. Miss Penny told them that if they'll come serve at Awana, they will learn some things they won't learn anywhere else. Amen? Here's one thing I, w- I want to say about this, this passage. And I, I want to talk to the men, men in the room. Does this surprise you about Jesus? Listen to this passage. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You want to learn how to enter the kingdom? You have to learn that from a child. This is not childishness. Childishness is a sin. This is childlikeness and humility. And he took them. This is your Jesus. Just see this picture. And he took them in his arms. And he blessed them laying hands on them. Took them in his arms. He protected them. He blessed them. Laid hands is a picture of discipleship. He may be sitting there teaching them things that the hard-headed disciples are not getting. Men, listen to me. Is this your picture of masculinity? Not how much wood you can chop, how good you look in flannel, how you can throw your hands, how you can get a paycheck. I would argue Jesus is the most manly man that has ever lived. And he was fantastic with children. You say, well, I'm not good with kids. I don't even like kids. Well, repent. <laughs> Listen, I'm not saying you've got to be Mr. Rogers. But you could take one step, amen? amen? At getting better at welcoming kids. There is no other text that we have in the Bible that more clearly says that Jesus hugged somebody than that passage right there. And for some of you that are not huggers, that probably creates a theological problem. But he took them in his arms. He protected them. He blessed them. He welcomed them. Most people that are killing their kids think they are too important to receive kids. They're too busy with stuff. They're too high and mighty. They're too self-important. They want to kill their kids so that they can ignore them. It's kind of like what we do whenever we throw our kids in front of screens because we don't want to spend time with them. Parents, you are either receiving kids and blessing them or you are rejecting kids and cursing them. There's two directions. We are either a church that despises children or we are a church that welcomes them like Jesus. We can't, we can't despise them and love them at the same time. We've got to choose. You are either receiving the kingdom like a child, or you are rebuking those trying to come to Jesus. Jesus could have came a lot of ways, but he came as a child. He experienced what it was in the womb. By the way, Mary, help me out here, theologians. Did Mary celebrate 
her pregnancy of Jesus once Jesus was born? Or did she celebrate with Elizabeth at conception? Oh, yeah, it's, it's conception. We are not that far away from Christmas, people. It's conception that she celebrated, right? Jesus experienced the full humanity of being in a womb, being born, being a child. And so there is something that Jesus allows us to be unified with the divine as we understand the sacred picture of the kingdom that children preach to us. And we are either receiving that sermon or we are blocking out our ears and trying to shut up those that are preaching it. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus gave his life, gave his life, so that you might live. The evil of abortion is, I've got to kill you so I can live however I want. So here's the thing. We're going to finish, but before we do, Jenny, come up, band, come up. Uh, uh, As they come, if uh, if you're a kid, Ethan, this is you too, so I see you up there, and you live at home with your parents, Everybody, little kids, stand up. Every little kid in here, stand up. We got a sermon to preach. Either you can move out whatever you want, bro. Until this is over. All right, uh, little ones, come on up here in the front. I want you. You can be as loud as you want. Nobody cares. Come on up, kids. Why are all the seats empty? That's right. <laughs> Kiddos, we're gonna sing. So good. Cody, would you stand up? Can you pray for these kids? these kids up here to such belongs the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Now for a benediction. May you, as you go out today, receive the children like Jesus did and in so doing realize that you're receiving something about the kingdom.
Amen? Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.